This is With You in the Weeds. Do you ever find yourself stuck in between what you know to be true and what you actually experience? Or the difference between where you are and where you want to be? Well, if so, you're in the weeds. And like weeds, those tough places keep coming back. I'm Lynn Rausch. And I'm John Tennant. As counselors, Lynn and I deal with those weeds all the time. Together, we designed this podcast because we want to be with you in those weeds, kind of like God desires to be with us. Hmm. Now, that idea will change everything. So we hope you'll listen in and let us be with you in the weeds. Let's get started. Okay, today we are going to talk about spitting camels. And you'll know what we mean as we get into oh, this. Oh, yes, you will. By the end of this I episode. believe that's what we call a hook. Uh, it is a hook. So I'm here. I'm John Tenen. I have like been doing this forever and ever, working with these two people that I love so much. And Lynn, uh, welcome. Hi, John. And Austin, hello. Hey, Good am I the you. beauty or am I the wisdom? You are the wisdom. Okay. I'll be kind of navigating us through this process and we'll get wisdom and Lynn also has wisdom. She's not just beautiful. Now, last week we did four relationship killers, things that destroy relationships and erode them. This week we have four relationship builders. Now, these are the things that you do in place of the killers and the killers are criticism, contempt, defensiveness, and stonewalling. Any questions, just go back and listen to what we did. Gottman calls them the antidotes, proven techniques, he says, to break through the negativity of the four killers. These four builders are the antidotes. Yes. Yes. So you have the killers, then you have the builders, right? Today, the builders, last week, the killers. And Gottman claims that these things that are antidotes, that are builders, we're using that back and forth synonymously. He claims that they will improve the relationship dramatically if you practice them. The thing is, is that they're not easy. Uh, it takes a lot of trust, takes a lot of internal strength, and it requires doing them enough over and over and over again so they become automatic and they become available in the heated moments. Kind of like a soldier learns to break down his rifle, does it over and over and over again so that when he's in the heat of battle, he doesn't have to think about it. It's automatic, muscle memory. Now, these are things to practice that actually fit into what the Bible has been describing for thousands of years. I love this passage, Ephesians 4, 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. What's really interesting about this passage is the Greek word for unwholesome, you know, when Paul says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, that Greek word means harmful. Hmm. So Paul says, instead of harmful words, use words that edify. And the word for edify means to strengthen, build up, or to make more able, more stable. Um, now, I grew up learning that this verse meant you shouldn't use cuss words. And it may include that. We all know we can use cuss words to hurt people, but it is so much more than that. It means to use your words 
and embody communication in such a way that you bring life into someone else instead of destruction. Uh, it is communication that preserves, protects, and builds life into a relationship and actually opens up the possibility of coming closer. This is what Gottman found in his research, just observing human behavior over 40 years. And we have to practice these things a lot so that when conflict happens, not if it happens, because it's going to, but when it happens, you, you have things to draw upon. And so here's the four builders we're talking about. Number one, you need a gentle startup instead of criticism. Two, you need to build a culture of appreciation instead of contempt. Third, take ownership of your part in a conflict instead of defensiveness. And then fourth, stay engaged instead of stonewalling. Now, to be sure, these four things don't only apply in marriages. So if you're not married, don't check out because this applies to your life too, to friendships, relationships with parents, coworkers, and more. And like John was saying, if and when you begin practicing and applying and embodying these in your relationships, they're going to bring greater levels of growth and healing and connection. But, and this is a big but, it takes time. They're like an exercise routine. You know, if you go to the gym or go to that CrossFit or Orange Theory and you expect to be in shape after one meeting or one workout, well, you're going to be disappointed. And it's not the workout's fault. It's your own fault for your expectations. But instead, if you're patient and sort of alter the timeline on some changes, I think you're going to make better progress. So, um, you know, we're going to get to it, but I, I got this question. I'm not sure if we talked about it in our planning meeting. Why do you guys think it's hard for people to practice these four relationship builders? Yeah, they're they're so hard to do in real time. And like John said, it's not if we're going to have conflict, it's when we're going to have conflict. It happens a lot in life, but yet a lot of times these things haven't been modeled to us. We did not grow up seeing our parents resolve conflict. Maybe we witnessed a lot of criticism. We saw um, mom and dad respond with contempt or stonewalling. And so these are things that we're used to seeing through our parents' eyes. And then we just kind of subconsciously adopt those things. And before you know it, we're reenacting, we're reliving, we're repeating those patterns from our family hmm. of origin. Uh, but I also think sometimes we just don't believe they're actually going to work. We just think, oh, you know, um, that sounds too simplistic. Um, you know, it's just not worth putting the time into them because it's not going to do anything. But like Gottman's research showed, these things actually work when you do them repeatedly over a long period of time. But I would just say for myself, uh, one of the reasons why these are so hard is that it just goes against my human nature. I, I think, you know, we naturally tend towards the relationship killers. And so to build a relationship, it really takes conscious awareness. It takes intention. And that's what we really want our listeners to take away from this. If you bring these things to your conscious awareness and you really put the intention and effort into them, we believe that over a period of time, you're going to see changes. You're going to see the fruit of that. Each of these relationship builders is difficult to do for different reasons. So as we go along, we'll explore why it's so hard. I would only add one thing to that that just just kind of colors what you were saying about it being so natural. Our brains tend to remember negative things more than positive. So we're going to hang on like 
our brains are like super glue when it comes to hurtful words, experiences, suffering, all the hard stuff of life. So I think that also makes it easier to communicate negatively. We look for the negative, we expect it, and we sort of collect it as life goes on. And I'm going to get us started with the first relationship builder. This is the GSU. I'm starting to like acronyms. Mm -hmm. I'm watching this SEAL team show. They use acronyms all the time. So GSU stands for gentle startup. And this is what you use instead of criticism. And what Gottman found is if you start a conversation within a conflict with a gentle startup, it determines the outcome of the conversation. Mm -hmm. So it's the opposite of criticism. And basically what you're doing is you're taking the complaint or the issue and you're focusing on that. And you're starting up a discussion about what the concern might be or what the complaint is. And how you start this conversation, it's going to determine where it lands. So Gottman calls it being criticism ready. And it's learning to state your case about whatever you're dealing with in such a way that your partner, your friend, your coworker, whoever you're dealing with, doesn't take it as a personal attack. So you're going to make your criticisms more specific and you're going to voice them as complaints or concerns instead of personal attacks. Now, I'm going to give you an example in a second, but one thing to remember with a gentle startup is you try to avoid the second person pronoun you, because as soon as you say you, it tends to put the other person's brain into a defensive posture. So you're going to talk about your feelings using I statements. You know, feelings rule the world, whether or not we like talking about them or dealing with them. You know, even Wall Street, they talk about market sentiments. Well, what they mean is market feelings, how people feel mm, about mm -hmm. the market. That governs how they're going to invest. We are constantly governed by emotions, and we just need to get on board with that because that's how the brain works. So the formula that Gottman came up with goes like this. When this happens or when you tend to do this, and you can use the second person as long as you focus on the issue. Like when you slam the door, I feel scared. So you're stating it's the slamming of the door. I feel scared. And this is what I need. Would you be willing to not slam the door? And the phrase, would you be willing, is pretty magical uh, because it puts power into the other person's lap. It's asking a question, which is honoring a boundary, and you're giving them the power like to decide what they want to do. It also forces them to think about what they value. Hmm. So can I get that pattern just for our listeners? I feel this way. I need you to do this. Would you be willing to whatever that is? Mm -hmm. I feel, I need, and would you be willing? There's the ask. Now, why is this hard to do? Well, because we really believe we can get what we want if we criticize, and frankly, we think it's more powerful to criticize. Um, Lynn, do you have any comment on that? Because we, in our planning, you, you talked a lot about this, like we feel like we can change people, like when we criticize. Yeah, I mean, I can just speak from my own life that um, I, 
you know, went into my marriage thinking that if there were things that I was unhappy with, if I criticized enough, that it would produce change. And so, again, um, having to fight against human nature, you know, having to learn gentle startup, taking ownership, these are all things that I had to stumble upon you know, later on in my marriage that I wish I had known at the beginning. So and we're afraid we won't be heard. Yeah. Yeah. So criticism sounds, sounds louder in some ways, sound, it feels more powerful, but it really, like going back to last week, it blocks communication. Mm -hmm. All right. What's the second builder? Yeah. So instead of contempt, what we want to do is build a culture of appreciation. And it's kind of like putting chips into an emotional bank account. You know, over time, what we're doing is we're establishing a rapport with another person and we're working towards believing the best about them. We're noticing the things that they do for us and for the relationship and we're honoring and acknowledging those things. And I think by doing that, we're also taking pressure off of them to be perfect or to get it right every time. You recognize, you know, hey, this other person is in process just like I am. And so they're going to make mistakes. And so I'm not going to, you know, criticize or belittle them for every small thing that happens, which is where, you know, it tends to lead when we end up with contempt. We're, you know, micro focusing on everything that that person does. And, you know, one of the things we have our couples do um, in the real marriage class that John and I have taught for seven or eight years now is we ask couples to, you know, think about something that you like, love, or appreciate about your partner. And, and we really want them to actually slow down and take the time to think about it and then tell the other person that. Say it out loud. Don't just keep it as a thought in your head. So again, this goes back to being consciously, intentionally aware of speaking words of life and affirmation and appreciation to the people around us. And when I think about when I get that simple word of appreciation or encouragement or positivity, it can go a long, long way. In fact, I joke with Shay um, about the fact that I'm like an emotional camel. <laughs> so <laughs> speaking of camels, um, I can last a long time on a really good compliment or a genuinely expressed word of appreciation. When I have that, I can literally go weeks, months, maybe even years, because those positive hmm. words, when they're spoken, it's like water to a thirsty soul. And it's like, I just can carry that with me for a long time. So we don't want to underestimate how powerful those words of appreciation and affirmation can be. Yeah, you know, when we were thinking about what we were going to say in this episode, I really had uh, very fond thoughts about you as I was reading through our show notes. You grew up in a family culture, and I know this about you, that was very affirming. So when you get a compliment, it lands in a certain place. It lands in a sea of positive memories mm. about who you are. Interesting. So you're able to keep that compliment afloat like for a long time. Mm -hmm. Other people who grow up in environments where they're not affirmed and there's a lot of negativity, they have a very hard time taking a compliment and keeping it. Hmm. They can hear it, but it doesn't have anywhere to go. It doesn't have a category. Mm -hmm. Now, Lynn, 
That doesn't mean by any stretch of the imagination that you're complete and Gosh, that you're no. perfect. No, not at yeah, all. Yeah, I mean, I, I did kind of a deep dive on camels. Oh, shoot. Like Seriously? in prep for this. And they're not known <laughs> to be very friendly. They spit on people. Okay. Like when they get upset. That's good. Hey, Lynn. Can, I'll take it. <laughs> there's the, there is our spitting camel. So many camel jokes. I do have a question, follow-up, Lynn. Um, what would you say to somebody who has no experiential practice for this and for giving appreciation? And let's say they say something like, wow, I really like how you look today. Or I really appreciate that you got groceries on the way home. Like in that tone. In other words, <laughs> Is it enough to just start mm -hmm. this process without the feelings? Will the feelings catch up? What would you say to somebody? Well, that's a great question. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think sometimes it's um, fake it till you make it, <laughs> you know, because your heart may not be in a place where you can really extend a lot of charity to someone. But if you do practice that, over time and you really do focus on, okay, what are the positive things about this person that I can truly appreciate? Um, I, I think it does, you know, slowly those feelings can uh, match. Well, I'm going to throw one more thing in here. I think you bring up a great question. I want to bring up focus. There's a lot of language around mindfulness in the mental health industry today, and it basically means what you're minding or what you're focusing on. You can focus on a negative that somebody does, but that's only one part of them. You can choose to focus on more positive parts mm. and like double click on those. Mm. For instance, maybe the person's really irritable and they're hard to get along with for whatever reason, but you can focus on, you know what? They constantly get the groceries and they're constantly supporting the family. And I can say, you know, I like that about you. Yeah, I would say, you know, even Gottman found that what he called begrudging agreement hmm. with someone can be a positive form of validation. So it, it may even be, you know, I hate to admit it, but I think your point of view is good. Like you're just even if you can just give that person a crumb you know, just a, a simple thank you when they complete a task or they do something that's positive towards the relationship. It's this this basic validation has been shown to even, you know, lower your blood pressure and uh, decrease adrenaline flow in your body. And so I think the reason why is because it's supplying one of the four S's. We've talked about those a lot, seen, safe, soothed, and secure. And when we have a culture of appreciation, what we're saying is, I see you. Okay, that's great. Go back to the ratio, though. Gottman talks about you have to have five positives to outweigh one negative. So I'm thinking about a couple that's been in a pattern for a long time, and they try this, and they throw out a positive, one or two of mm -hmm. them, and the other person is not feeling good about it, they don't respond positively because there is a filter in place. Yeah, negative sentiment override, as Gottman would call it. So this takes a lot of discipline and work, mm -hmm. as Gottman says, to do over and over and over again. Yeah, the only, I'll say this real quick, and I want to hear from you a little bit more, Lynn, but it just reminds me, let's say the person is a robot and they're not giving you the appreciation and the tone that they would like, and yet you hear them actually say that. 
Maybe it's appreciating, wow, you're not there yet, but the fact that you just did that, I'm going to meet you where you are and appreciate that. Doesn't mean you're done. Doesn't mean the other person doesn't have more work to do, but simply acknowledging you're doing the best with what you can. That's really hard to do, but it sounds like that's an important piece. Speaking of why this is hard to do, Lynn, why is this so hard to do? (laughs) (laughs) Why? It's all so hard to do. Um, I mean, I can only speak for myself here, but I think for me personally, I think the reason why building this culture of appreciation is I'm afraid that if I show appreciation or, you know, vulnerability by saying, you know, thank you, then it's like I, I don't matter. So it's like I'm giving you appreciation or affirmation, but I don't know if I'm going to get it back in return. So it sort of feels like I might be giving something up and that feels scary and vulnerable because I'm seeing you, but are you going to see me? What about me? Yeah, exactly. And so it's almost like my tendency is to withhold it like, you know, a camel, right? You know, like I'm, you know, maybe I'm starving in the desert. I don't want to share it with anyone. I have to hoard that and so it really again it takes that um, practice of giving, putting those chips into the emotional uh, basket, and really then I have to draw strength from my relationship with the Lord and from other resources so that I can give that to others. Yeah, that's great. If you don't get it, like in a particular relationship, that relationship isn't your sole source right. of nutrition, if mm-hmm. you will. You can go outside of some of those relationships and get what you need so that you can come back to the more difficult relationship and you've got stuff stored up from other places. Otherwise, if you don't, you're going to be like a camel that spits on people. All right, spitting camels is the theme today. Along with relationship builders in Austin, we're going to take a break. But after we come back, I want you to tell everyone what the third relationship builder is is. Thank you so much for listening to With You in the Weeds. If you like what you're hearing, text this episode to a friend and find us on Instagram at With You in the Weeds. Okay, the third relationship builder is taking ownership of your part in a conflict instead of getting defensive. Taking ownership means acknowledging the way in which you're responsible. It means admitting you did something you shouldn't have or didn't do what you should have or wanted to do. It might mean saying something like, you know what, you might be right. I really do escalate our conflicts by invalidating your emotions. Something like that. If, I don't know, if defensiveness is putting up your shield, then taking ownership means putting down that shield and allowing yourself to be vulnerable, just like you were talking about a second ago, Lynn. And I I think this fits the spirit of Matthew 7, verse 3, where Jesus says to take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll be able to see clearly in order to take the speck out of your brother or sister's eye. And, And what's interesting is that this verse assumes that there's two people with things in their eye. In other words, both people are at fault in some way. Well, that's a great point. Yeah. And I think Jesus is speaking to the order and the heart posture in which these things must be removed. Start with yourself and then get to the other person. I like to imagine sort of a pie chart in a conflict, and then you can divvy up the responsibility by asking, oh, okay, 
how much of this conflict is my fault and how much is the other's fault. Now, that doesn't mean it's right, but just kind of that start with the initial hunch. So maybe it's, okay, 80% of this conflict is their fault, but I got 20%. But you know what? I start in that place. Sure. I really do. I start with, okay, well, this is mostly their problem. Right, right. And yet Jesus tells us and tells me, look, I need to take ownership of my 20% first before dealing with all the other 80%. Now, with all that said, I want to make a really important caveat, and I hope you listeners really take note here. There are some situations where someone is 100% at fault. And the first situation I'm thinking of is cases of physical or verbal or emotional abuse that somebody is enduring from a, a foolish person or an evil person. And everything I just said about the pie chart and percentages, that does not apply to those mm. cases. Mm-hmm. Well, this is something you brought up in a couple of episodes back that you have to figure out who you are dealing with. Right, right. Um, The person being abused, they have not earned that abuse and they do not deserve that abuse. And I'm even, and I'm sure you guys have too, heard of some very unfortunate cases where Christians will use verses like Matthew 7 that I just read to shame people that they're hurting into admitting fault Mm. or using it as an excuse for abuse. Something like, look, I don't want to hit you but you're making me do this. If you stop it, then I'll stop doing this. Mm-hmm. If that's happening to you, or you've heard someone else say this or hear this, I just want you to know that is wrong. End of story. You don't need a spitting camel in that case. No. You need the camel to stomp on them. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Am I allowed to say that? <laughs> I mean, I think I'm glad you're bringing this point out, Austin, because I think there are certain situations um, in certain relationships where one person is a true victim of what is happening and they are not in any way, shape, or form responsible for what has happened to them. And an evil person, a manipulative person, wants to make the other person believe that it is their fault. And so we have to be very discerning, very careful, very wise when we you know, are taking in this information and really, you know, figuring out what category to put a situation in if there's a conflict. But why is it so hard, Austin, to take ownership in these situations? Why do we tend to get defensive? Yeah, I I don't think I'm going to say anything revolutionary here. Uh, I think it's really hard for people because for lots of understandable reasons, they think that defending themselves is the only way they'll be heard, Mm -hmm. the only way they're going to be taken seriously. It was true in their upbringing whether it's in their family, whether it's in their social life, whatever. And now they just think, this is what I have to do. Um, There's a story that's coming to mind of a couple I did premarital counseling with years ago. And now they've been married for a long time. Uh, I loved and still love this couple. They're they're doing great today. But when we got together for premarital, y'all, it was rough. I just went, y'all, why did I say that? I don't know. (laughs) But, you know, if there was... If there was one word to describe their dynamics when we met, it was defensiveness. You know, she would say something like, you never listen to what I'm actually saying. And then he would immediately respond with, well, if you would take my request seriously, I might be able to listen. I mean, this is playing out right in the room. But in the end, after a lot of frustration and tears and work, they began changing their patterns. And and it doesn't always happen like this, but I actually remember the moment when the tide changed. I think we were talking about finances, and she made a snarky comment about his spending habits on beer. And I looked over, and I'm like, oh boy, here we go. But instead, I saw his eyes get wide, 
and his face get flushed. But then he took a deep breath and he went, and he looked over at her and said, you know what? You're right. I do spend too much on beer and I'm going to work on scaling it back because I know how much that means to you. Oh, that's magic. Yeah. That's, that's what you want. And that's what you live for as a therapist. Yeah. And I looked over at her and she was stunned into silence and then the tears started coming. And so when I asked her what the tears were about, she said it was the first time in a long time that she felt heard by him. Mm. And so then I, I asked if she wanted to say anything else. And she said, unbidden by me, I didn't even, I didn't land this for her. It came up. She said, I'm sorry for the snarky comment I made earlier. Mm. I didn't really mean it. And again, I'm like, what is going on? <laughs> Just be quiet. <laughs> Who are shut these up. people? <laughs> and, and I looked over and he had some tears in his eyes too. And he smiled and he said, thanks. I, I really appreciate it. Now, to be sure, they still fell back into their old familiar patterns, but in our time together, that behavior, it started to become the exception rather than the rule. And I, and I think that was the interaction that turned the tide for them, and they sort of had a redemptive ground zero to go back to and remember when things got tough. Now, and I want to hear from you guys in a, in a second, um, but for now, I, I don't tell that story to make you feel worse about where you might find yourself in your relationships. But instead, I tell that story to show what can happen if and when you go through the hard work of taking ownership instead of getting defensive. Okay, off my stump, I'm curious, what, what do you guys think about that story? Have you seen things like that? What stands out? Well, I've heard from people who have sat with you in the therapy room that that's the kind of amazing results they get <laughs> oh, like every yeah. single time, all the time. <laughs> um, so the fact that you told a story of a couple in premarital counseling uh, reminds me of an interesting little nugget that Gottman found in his research. And even pre Gottman, an old mentor of mine gave me the same framework. Mm. Um, this was before Gottman came out with his research. And it's really something I've found to be a, pretty predictable pattern. And this is it. Gottman found that married couples who start off with kind of like sex, pizza, movies, happy-go-lucky attitude, they had a higher divorce rate five to seven years into their marriage compared with couples who had a more rocky start. So the couples who started off at the beginning having more conflict and they leaned into the conflict they actually stayed together and were more stable than couples who were just fine. Why, why, why is that? I, I really honestly think that if on the front end you're doing kind of like going into the gym, the repetition of, okay, conflict happens, we're going to deal with it, we're not going to ignore it, you actually build a stronger bond. Uh, Dan Allender talks about this, that every relationship has a rupture and rupture is very common but god has designed us in such a way that if we repair that rupture there's a stronger bond than if the rupture had never happened it's like if you break a bone and you set the bone at the break at that break point that's stronger than any other part wow. of the bone surrounding it so repair is the key so if couples are coming into it saying okay we're going to arm wrestle um, their muscles are going to get stronger. Uh, they're going to have a tighter friendship. They're going to know each other at a deeper level. Yeah, I would say that I've definitely seen this dynamic too, just working with couples and, and the ones that can just admit 
yes, we we actually do have conflict. We don't see things eye to eye. And the sooner they come to that mm. reality, you know, we talk about in our marriage class, the ideal, you know, everyone goes into marriage with, you know, rose-colored glasses on, and then they hit the ordeal. Wow, the person I married isn't perfect, and neither am I. And then, okay, let's deal with the real deal. You know, those couples can end up with healthier patterns in the long run. And I want us to get to the next relationship builder because it's a really important one, and that is to stay engaged and to not stonewall. If we are going to build a healthy relationship, if we revert to stonewalling, which is a form of ghosting or avoiding or just checking out or shutting down, um, then we're not going to stay engaged and be able to continue communicating the way that we need to. And here's why we stonewall. Maybe we're really hurt or we're angry. Maybe we're just really distressed or we feel overwhelmed. But basically, we just shut down and go away. And so in order to stay engaged, it's going to mean that we have to be able to self-regulate. We have to have self-awareness. We have to have some basic skills um, to be able to make sense of what's happening inside me when I get upset or when I'm in a conflict with someone. Because if I can identify that, if I can know what I'm feeling and then calm myself down and communicate my feelings, then I'm not going to escalate the situation. I'm actually going to have a bridge towards repairing the situation. So for you, it may mean you know, taking a time out. Maybe it's walking away from the conversation and just taking 20 to 30 minutes to calm down and reset your system. But it, it needs to be done with the intention of returning to the other person, re-engaging with them, not staying in a place of shutting down, but really working back towards a connection with them. Let me make sure I'm getting this right. So staying engaged rather than stonewalling, it means essentially fighting to build a door between that wall rather than just keep mm. the wall there. Mm -hmm. And building a door allows possibilities for relationship in the future, and yet it's really hard to build that door. Sometimes you might need to take a break, mm -hmm. calm yourself down, give yourself some space, and yet because there's a door there, that means you re-engage at some point. That sounds like a great idea to do in reality, but speak a little bit about why is that so hard? Why have you found that to be so hard? It is extremely difficult to do because when you're hurt or when you're upset, it, it means that if I stay engaged with that person, I feel like I might be losing some power in the relationship. Mm. Sometimes stonewalling feels like this is my last resort to take a stand and preserve any kind of power or control that I may have. You know, in the last episode, I shared that story of how, I don't, do you guys remember? I, uh, Shay and I, I do, got I do remember. the Christmas tree. Christmas was canceled. Trimming yeah. fight. And, and I just kind of locked myself in a bedroom because I was so upset. And initially my stonewalling was because I'm hurt, I'm angry. But then it kind of moved to a place where I thought, okay, the longer I hold out here, the more power and the more control I have. And if I can stay, you know, in that place of control, then I can maybe hurt him back or I can pay him back for what I believed he had done wrong to me. And so I think stonewalling can then be used as a form of manipulation and a power play. And, and then we can use that as a weapon against this other person. Like, I'm just going to give them the silent treatment. I'm not going to talk to them. And in the long run, if we stay in that posture, 
then we are going to kill the relationship. Because if you play that movie forward, it's not going to turn out well in the end. You know, you mentioned like not talking to Shay for two to three days. And like, we all do that, right? It is seriously a power play. One of the things that I've found that's helpful is to think in terms of, I'm going to come back to this within a day, Mm -hmm. maybe 24 hours. And that verse that Paul says, don't let the sun go down on your anger, that's not a literal reference to the sun going down. I think it really means don't let darkness overtake Mm. this moment Mm -hmm. and keep it in the dark. So I've found it helpful to think in terms of, okay, I'm going to come back to this one today. And I even communicate that like to my wife or if the relationship's deep enough, like, hey, can we table this and can we come back to this tomorrow? Yeah, because if it's 11 o'clock at night and you both are fighting and you're at a stonewall point, even saying, look, I am not going to just move on from this. I want to come back. But right now I need to get some sleep so that we can be better tomorrow, maybe after the kids go to school or we get a pocket to grab lunch or something. I really like that. So we've talked about instead of criticism, you want a gentle startup. Instead of contempt, you want to build a culture of appreciation. Look for something that you can affirm the person for. Uh, instead of defensiveness, you find some percentage in there where you can take some ownership of the problem. And even if you can't, just say, look, I'm open to discovering my role in this, and I'll pray about it, and I'm open. Uh, and then stonewalling. Instead of stonewalling, you're going away to come back. You're regrouping so that you can have a more meaningful engagement when your bodily system Mm -hmm. starts slowing down and you can think rationally. So if we practice these things, we empower ourselves. We start building connections with people. We we deposit, quote unquote, money, if you will, into the emotional bank accounts of our relationships. This is a way we can actually serve people. So choosing words, choosing communication strategies carefully can have this kind of an effect. I'm going to pull from the message for this translation, Proverbs 18.21. Ancient wisdom from the Old Testament speaks to this very thing. Words kill, words give life. They're either poison or they're fruit. You choose. That's a pretty powerful verse. If you choose to build relationships within whatever domain that you're in, work, marriage, friendships, small groups, social media, etc., you're actively creating something that Jesus taught us to pray for, your kingdom come. And you're going to eat the fruit of using good words that bring life, not poison. All of these things, they're opening a door to a different way of doing relationships in our broken world. And these are all things that everybody wants. I want somebody to be gentle with me, express appreciation, own their part in the conflict, and stay engaged with me. Boy, when you put it that way, like who doesn't want this? Mm -hmm. And it's empowering, I think, when we realize we can give these things and serve them up to other people, almost like a waiter bringing out food. Now, chances are, if we do that, we'll get some of that back. But if we don't, We can surround ourselves with healthy people who do know how to give these things so that sometimes we can swim with the sharks and sometimes when we have to, we can stand near a spitting camel. (laughs) That's really good. I think we're ending with sharks and camels 
and all kinds of stuff. And Jesus help us do all of it because yeah. it's hard to do. It takes grace. It's great, uh, been great to be with you guys and to our listeners. Hope you enjoyed it and we will see you next time. Thanks for letting us be with you in the weeds of life. We want this resource to bring you hope and to help bridge the gap between where you are and where you want to be. Follow us on Instagram at With You in the Weeds. If you like what you're hearing, text the episode to a friend, like us, and leave a review. Until next time, remember, God is with you in the weeds.